Good morning, everyone. Can you believe it? Christmas is almost here. T minus seven days and counting. It's exciting. There's a great song. I know you know it. It's one of my favorites as far as Christmas songs go. And it's entitled, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. And if you listen carefully to the words, there's a phrase that says, It's the happiest season of all. And why not? Enjoying family and friends and good food. I pray that God gives you peace this year, that everything around your life has that blessing where there's really no turmoil or conflicts around so that you can really have a fantastic Christmas. But unfortunately, unfortunately, that's never guaranteed to have a happy anything. For me, uh, 1986 was a Christmas that was not panning out for me. Uh, my dad started suffering from a heart issue and had multiple minor heart attacks that cycled him in and out of the hospital. He just got weaker and weaker during the fall. And when Christmas season began, we had a cataclysmic event occurred, 911. I still remember the firefighters and the paramedics working on dad. It was a terrible time. I thought we were going to lose him, but... Thank God for our first responders. They got him back and got in the hospital. But when he woke up, it was very, 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 very clear he was never going to come out of there again. It was just a compromise in his health, his cognitive abilities. Throughout the rest of Christmas, he, Christmas season, he just continued to erode. And I remember mom talking to me and my brother on Christmas Eve saying, it's no use, we can't spend Christmas together, I'm going to spend time with Dad in the ICU, you can go visit your uncles and aunts, after all, we had a family where uncles were like fathers and cousins were like brothers, we really were blessed with that. And we had a good time, me and my brother, away from Mom and Dad, but I couldn't help but feel that the fingers of change and loss were just on its way into our family. I was orphaned before already once, and now on 1986 Christmas, I was starting to feel like I was going to be an orphan again. A few weeks later, Dad did pass away, and of course there's a funeral and months of mourning, and something happened that I was not expecting. I hit this depression that was literally terrifying for me, and all of 1987 was a write-off, but, but perhaps Christmas 1987 would give me a little bit of reprieve. That was not going to be the case. That first Christmas without Dad just reiterated the fact that whatever happened is now permanent. And Pastor Joel just mentioned that just a moment ago. And if you're going through a process like that, trust me, I understand where you're coming from. But for me, 1987 was so bad that by Christmas Eve at 10 o'clock, I couldn't take it anymore. I said, Mom, I'm getting out of here. I need to drug myself up with a hamburger. I called up a friend of mine, and we went out looking for a place to eat. You know what? There's no place to eat on Christmas Eve. Save the trucker's diner at the Husky gas station. All right. If you remember that, if you remember that, you're really old, but that was awesome. You know, it was between southbound and northbound uh, Calgary Trail, just close to 51st Avenue. Been there before. wasn't too bad. It's just a hamburger. You know what? I had to wait an hour and a half for that lousy hamburger. It was... Past midnight, it was now Christmas. It was the worst dining experience I ever had. And when it came, I met my match. I couldn't eat it. It was the worst meal I ever had. I've never felt so bad in my entire life, and now I have to pay for it. 
Have you ever seen the movie Trains, Planes, and Automobiles? Okay, I was one of those characters for sure. I couldn't help but laugh. Sometimes things just don't go your way. Um, there wasn't a happy ending for me on that. I continued to suffer with depression, and I prayed to the Lord for the next two years, God, take this away from me, and slowly, thank you, Lord, he brought me through that. I started dating Laura, and I finally started talking to someone about that, and it was her. And she's not just my wife, she's my best friend. Those are good things to know. That, listen, if you go through negative things, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Even if you can't see it. Even if you think you can't do anything, there's one thing you can do, and you can wait. They that wait upon the Lord shall will renew their strength. So chin up. Now, understanding, we're getting back on the topic again, things happen. And my story by no means is extreme. We all go through things. I like how Ecclesiastes so eloquently places it for us. It says this, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And it continues on that same theme. You get what's going on. Yes, yes, happiness isn't guaranteed. But what the Bible does do is it promises us something else, and it's better, and it's joy. Not just any typical kind of joy. It's a joy that's found only in the person of Jesus Christ. Only there, only there. Joy, happiness. Joy, happiness. Aren't they kind of the same thing? Or are they different? Well, if you look in your, diction, or in your dictionary, you'll find out that really joy is defined as happiness and happiness is defined as joy. They literally flop back and forth. They meant to be, I guess, the same thing. But when we talk about biblical joy, that's completely different. In fact, it's so different that they're almost polar opposites to each other, which is surprising because sometimes they kind of look the same, but fundamentally they are not. Happiness, according to what I've read before, and I actually have heard from Nikki Gumbel, it makes it so well and so clear for us that happiness is based on your happenstances. Interesting, the same root word. It's trying to tell us that when you look at happiness, all it is is an emotional response to outside stimulus in your situation. So when things are going good, you're happy. And when things are going bad, you're sad. You're excited about having all the family come over this year. You're happy. Then you go to the grocery store and find out the turkey is going to cost you 150% more than it did last year. Now you're sad. It's just a response. And you can't control it, and it's not negative or good. It's just a part of our mechanism to respond to outside stimulus. Joy, on the other hand, is not funded, founded, funded, founded on that principle. It's on a completely different measuring stick. It doesn't really care about what's going on right now. 
It has nothing to do with how you feel. This is important. The joy that you have in Christ is not based on how you feel. It's based, as Rick Warren says, on a personal choice, and that choice is based upon information. It's information, not situation. Specific information being the hope that the scriptures give us in Christ Jesus. When you take that information, that hope that the Bible describes to you and I, and you personalize it, and you take it for yourself personally, the Bible calls that faith, you are transformed, you're made brand new, you have hope is sparked in your life, and it automatically initiates something called joy. This joy is this deep down personal satisfaction that you know that you know that you know that God's going to work out everything for your benefit. You still might be grieving. You still might be sad. You still might be dealing with fear and anxiety. But when you keep your eyes on Christ and that information that you now take personally, you have something that intercedes and goes beyond what you are experiencing. And instead of feeling all the sadness and fear, something comes up from underneath it and this profound sense of gratitude that no matter what you're going through, God has you. It's information, information, personalized. Happiness is also something that cannot derive meaning or purpose. And if you pursue happiness as an end in itself, you're going to be disappointed. But if you look at the joy that comes in Christ through the the birth of Christ at Christmas time and who he is and find yourself in the center of who he is, you find meaning, purpose, and value. We have to dig into this one just a little bit deeper, so let's just do that for a second. I don't know how many of you read the book of Ecclesiastes, but almost anyone I talk to, they don't want to read it because it sounds like the author of that book came out of the wrong side of the bed that morning. He seems like he's depressed. Well, that's kind of a shallow reading of the scriptures. Ecclesiastes, what it really is, is a book of logic and a book of reason that addresses the philosophical question of reality. And it's asking specifically, is there such a thing as purpose and meaning in our existence that I can create myself? It uses the parameter not of human time, but it, it actually falls back and uses the sun as a reference. It uses a cosmological timeline scale as a measuring rod of what could possibly be worthwhile. The sun, of course, just keeps smiling at us as generations come and generations go. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to figure out, is there something I can do, something I can pursue that's actually going to have some meaning for generations to come? He tests everything scientifically, isolating one independent variable at a time. He first looks at making money. Apparently, he was really good at it. He was the richest person in the world at that time. He could make money, and he was blessed at doing it. He must have been pretty happy until he took that notion and brought it through the crucible of logic, and he came to this immaculate understanding that it comes to nothing. I make all this money, I'm going to die, I'm going to be bankrupt. And then someone else is going to take it, and they're going to blow it. 
What's the purpose in that? And his exact words is meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. He runs the same test one time after another. Test pleasures. It fails. Living fast and partying. Big zero. Noble pursuits. He wanted to leave a legacy. So he got involved in doing all sorts of infrastructural works, improving the environment and the world around him. And he had fun in doing that. But then he realized, guess what? I'm going to die and no one's going to care. And even if they did, where am I going to be to have them give me a pat on the back saying, hey, that's a good job? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He logically goes to one event after another, and he doesn't discover a single thing he can do to drive purpose. Not one. That's why everyone thinks it's a downer. But he's just logically making a test of what reality is. He comes down to this final conclusion, and he says, the only thing that possibly could possibly give you any worth is to fear God and obey his commands. And then the book ends. It doesn't say anything more. At least it's almost wondering what that means. To fear God and to obey his commands is to acknowledge his supremacy not only in the universe, but in our lives. That he has the ability to act in our favor or against us, depending if we can actually simply just acknowledge him. And to live a life not just to please myself, but to please him as well. And since this is an academic exercise, we start hearing other voices now coming into it. The secularist would start to say, well, that's great. You're just creating an idea of God so you can cope with the emptiness of your existence. Karl Marx takes it a little bit further. Of course, he's the father behind the foundation, the foundational ideology of communism. He writes this, that religion, Christianity, is the opiate of the masses. So it's not just an idea, it's a really bad idea. But then all of a sudden we hear another voice, we hear Einstein coming in, he said, no Carl, you got it wrong. There has to be a God, the universe is too perfect. There must be some higher mind in force that must be in existence behind it all. There must be a God, but Einstein concluded that whatever God that is, couldn't care about us. Regardless if God's just an idea, a bad idea, or exists, and he doesn't care, we come down to the same basic conclusion, life has no meaning. But is there another voice? Is there someone else that can speak into this? The Apostle John, in the book of John, talks to this. He speaks about the Word, capital W. The Word was God, and... He created everything. And this word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Is it possible that God exists, that he actually cares for us and wants to know us and talk to us and hear us and be involved in our lives? John starts to put together the picture that, in fact, that maybe that might be true. But he continues this thought in a different book and talks about the word again in a personal, evidential way. That the word was someone that he saw, someone that his hands had touched. He lived with them. He ate with them. 
He shared all of a few years with them on earth. He saw him walk on water, walk through walls, feed thousands of people with a meal from a child. He saw the dead rise, the sick made well. He saw him and he heard him say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever drinks from me will never be thirsty. He heard and saw him. That who created all things loved us enough to come and share in our humanity. There's a portion of scripture that says there's nothing about him that would be attracted to him in his appearance. I guess he just wasn't going to be in a GQ magazine. I told my daughter that yesterday. She started to laugh. He goes, well, that's kind of discouraging. But the Bible also says that he was also a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. He knows what it is to be unhappy. He lived it with us. But that wasn't the only reason why the Christ child came. The apostle talks about Christ dying. He talks about seeing him after he was risen from the dead. And he heard Jesus say, I am going to go away to prepare a place for you. And then I'm coming back so you can be with me forever. Does God care? Does he want to be involved with our lives? I like what, uh, what Billy Graham once said. Never forgot it. God is interested in you, wants to be involved in your life, and he wants you to be with him in heaven. Purpose. 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 Something that can beat the existence of the lifespan of the sun is only found not in an idea, but in the person of Jesus Christ. That is joy. Can you hear that? Well, I can't hear anything, but I'm assuming you're thinking about it. So we have joy that is something that cannot change. So we look at one step further. Happiness is obviously very temporal. But when we look at the joy that is found in the person of Jesus Christ, it is something you can never lose, can never be stolen, and it cannot be destroyed. This is really, really important. Yeah, joy isn't necessarily a feeling, but it is the most real, concrete thing you and I could ever possess. Seriously. Interesting. The sun, going back, I know some of you are going to say, oh no, please don't talk about science. Just, 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 just for a second, Ecclesiastes started it, okay? It's not my fault. The sun obviously is big and it's hot. But it's also an extremely thirsty furnace. It consumes 600 million tons of hydrogen every second. I can't even get my head around it. I mean, not like taking a match to it and lighting it for combustion. I'm talking about nuclear fuel. 600 million tons. All we need is a few kilograms of that nuclear material. And if we were to smash it together, everything between here and Leduc and the city of Edmonton would be gone. Just a few kilograms of it in a hydrogen bomb. But the sun burns ridiculous amounts of that every second. I mean, when is it going to burn out? 
Apparently, the calculations are that there is so much hydrogen in the sun for fuel that it can burn for five billion years. Now, my understanding of scripture is that God's going to interrupt that process and it's not going to last five billion years. But I would imagine if God just actually just let the universe spin until it finally peters out, it's going to be here for a really, really long time. And if God were to choose to let the universe burn out slowly until it goes dark and cold and no longer exists, the hope you have in Christ still stands. It is still real. How can you possibly say that? You can't even get your head around that. Where did you get that idea? Here, get a load of this. Matthew 24, 28. Jesus says, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words never pass away. The hope you have in Christ cannot be destroyed. It's so important. It'll be the most important point that we make. So when we read in John 10.10, where Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus has come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, period. It doesn't matter what I'm feeling. It doesn't matter what I'm experiencing. It doesn't matter what I think the world is like. I can't see the light of the end of the tunnel. I can't see the solution. But I can have the knowledge that I know, that I know, that I know, that he's going to make it right. I can trust him for that. He's going to bring me through. A joy founded on information that is the promises of God that is now mine and yours and it can't be taken away. And it's not just Jesus' word saying it in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it says this, he will never leave you or forsake you. You know, a good idea is a good idea, but the truth can never be destroyed. It was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. It's true today. It will still be true after the Son is no longer in existence. It is yours all the time. Can you hear that? Emily, let's go past the next verse uh, we're running out of time, and we're going to go to Psalms 34. King David, he was a guy that knew what it was like to have a bad day. In fact, it seemed like most of his life he's trying to wait, run away from someone who's trying to kill him. But you know what? He knew joy. And he says this, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he de delivered me from some of my fears. No. That's not what it says. He delivered me from 99% of my fears. No, that's not what it says. He delivers me from all my fears and yours. That is your promise too. Amen? I like this. I'm going to go to the King James because I think the King James says it best. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for Thou art with you, me, not somebody else, you specifically. Not just a good idea, it's the truth, and you can own it today in the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, another wonderful promise. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, famine, nakedness or danger or sword. Wow, talking about having a bad day. Can any of those things 
all those nightmare sequences, can they do anything to disrupt the promise that you have in Christ? He goes on to say, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not a survivor, not just making it by by the skin of your teeth. You come out of there like a radiant Roman champion. You are the bomb. You're the boss in Christ in the most difficult times. What does this really mean? Well, the joy that we have in Christ is more powerful than your anxiety. The joy that we have in Christ makes you, makes you resilient to discouragement. It overcomes your greatest fears. It's stronger than cancer. Even the grave can't slow it down. The joy that is given to us at Christmas is a juggernaut. What's a juggernaut? Well, on the surface, it's a Marvel Comics character. It's kind of a cool guy, but that's not what we're talking about. A juggernaut is something, once it gets moving, you can't stop it. And that is a joy we have in Christ. It smashes through all our negative experiences and still just keeps on coming to bless us. I love this next scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the Son of God, this is now Paul writing, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. It wasn't a 50-50 deal. But in him has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Are you hearing that today? This indestructible, infallible joy that is for us who believe in Christ. Dr. Frank Collins um, is one of the world's leading geneticists. And he actually was the one that spearheaded the Human Genome Project where he successfully was able to map the entire human DNA. A devout atheist. Until he encountered a patient of his that was dying in a hospital room. But she had this insatiable joy. And he couldn't figure it out. She was as calm as calm can be. And she had this unexpected amount of happiness and joy and freedom and peace. It was, he said he couldn't help but notice it. The only thing that this patient was concerned about was him as a doctor. And he said, doctor, I am concerned for you. She's dying in her bedroom. And he goes, well, what are you talking about? Have you made a decision to accept Jesus Christ into your life? And he's like, I'm an atheist. He goes, why? Have you actually really thought about it? Perhaps you should take some time to put a little bit more thought into that because it is the most important question you can ask. I'm paraphrasing it really bad. But nonetheless, that was the encounter he had with this patient. But because of the joy that she exhibited and the question that she asked, it put him into a journey of discovery to see if the historical Jesus Christ really is who he says he is. And going through historical evidence, he came to the understanding of the evidence that Jesus Christ really is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God. And he is, to this day, a devout Christ follower. 
And if you join Alpha, you can actually hear his story in video. Please join Alpha. We heard that, <clears throat> that announcement a moment ago. I think I'm going to be coming there for probably my eighth time. Okay, it's awesome. It's worth going to. How can we conclude our service based on what we have just heard? What kind of words can I possibly use to bring this to a conclusion? I believe the best way we can end it, this message is by the song, or the words. I'm not going to sing. That would be totally depressing. The words, the words of an old song, and it goes like this. There is joy in serving Jesus as I journey on my way. Joy that fills my heart with praises every hour, every day. There is joy, joy, joy in serving Jesus. Joy that throbs within my heart every moment, every hour as I draw upon his power. There is joy, joy, joy that never shall depart. There is joy in serving Jesus. Joy that triumphs over pain. Fills my heart with heaven's music till I join the glad refrain. There is joy, joy, joy in serving Jesus. Joy that throbs within my heart. Every moment, every hour, as I draw upon his power, there is joy, joy, joy that never shall depart. Some of you need to hear that this morning. You've been a Christ follower for years and years, but you've been so burdened down by all the negative inputs in your life that you're starting to think that you've lost your joy. You can't lose your joy, but you can misplace it. Perhaps it's in your trunk of your car, or perhaps it's in the shed or in the garage. What you need to do is take that invincibly indestructible element and put that up right here in your view so you see it all the time literally in your heart in your mind that's what you would do jesus says or it says in god's word fix your eyes on jesus christ the author and perfecter of your faith and when you do that then you can discover what paul says that i can rejoice in the lord always i say it again rejoice his presence is forever with you. With this joy, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. This is important. You have to choose what reality is. You have to choose for yourself what reality is. Will you base what reality is on what's going on around you? What your mind is telling you because of the situation around you and how you feel? Or do you hold as a higher priority to truth and reality God's word? When he says, I never will leave you or forsake you, even though it seems like God is not talking to you and he doesn't care and it seems like he's never cared, what's more true, that or his promises? If you hang on to his promises, then you have accepted a higher reality that cannot be taken from you or destroyed. But if you keep on focusing just the here and now, you'll never be able to lock into something that can never be taken away from you. That's why the Bible calls it faith. We don't walk by faith. Or we, we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. What the scriptures are saying, I don't walk by how I feel. I don't find, define my reality by what's around me. I define reality and truth 
in the person of Jesus Christ and the promises of his word. Remember the joy of Christmas is founded on knowledge, a knowledge that is for you. And when you do that, God will never, never forsake you. You will see again and again and again. His promises coming true to you, you won't have to hear someone preach about it. You're living it. And at the end of your life, you'll have so many testimonies, it'll bore everybody, how God continually comes into your life and rescues you. Jehovah Jireh, your best friend, your counselor, your everything. You need to remember that. And for some of you, you probably have never thought about receiving Christ into your life. And having this free gift that's offered in the person of Christ. I would encourage you today that you accept this free gift. It's a decision, a choice that you make of accepting the promises that God has made. Not to me only or to someone else, but to you personally. He is interested in your life. He wants to be involved in your life. And he wants you Yes, you, to be with him in heaven. The only thing that we need to do is say, Lord, I believe the gift that you've given me, and I want you to be in my heart. I'm going to ask you right now just to close your eyes with me, everyone. And if this is really the case in your heart, I'm not asking you to raise their hands, but if in your heart and your mind you've heard this message, and you're like, Lord, I want you to be in my life, then I would ask you just to follow along with this prayer and let it be your prayer and saying, Lord Jesus, I want you in my life. I understand and believe that you are the Son of God. Forgive me of all my sin. May it help me to live a life that's pleasing to you. I thank you that you have a plan and a destiny for me to be in heaven. I receive that now, and I thank you for that. In your name I pray, amen. And if you do that, and you do that from your heart, you have just begun a journey that can never, ever stop in his name. I hope that some of you will have, I hope everybody has a great Christmas, but I hope more and pray more that your joy can be found in Jesus Christ. Amen?